But it's like the the depth, the the real meat of the gospel is has been removed or taken out for the sake of trying to make it more appealing to uh, unbelievers, the lost, that kind of thing. And we just need to hear afresh that the gospel is not something that started with the gospels. It was God's plan all the way from the beginning. All the way. His pursuit began with Adam by the question, where are you? Adam was not looking for God. God was helping Adam see himself. God was the initiator. There is so much to drive us to worship and understanding the gospel, what it is for us. And it's throughout all of scripture, and we're going to see it buried in a very small passage in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And to help you get an understanding, the Old Testament is basically designed to show us God's epic plan, beginning for Genesis 3, verse 15, that the plan of God was unfolding as it was introduced and unfolded throughout the Old Testament, knowing the promise of a seed is coming. And the promise of deliverance is coming. But it was never revealed. It was just unfolding and it was pictured throughout. God's epic plan. That's what we look for in the Old Testament. Written in Hebrew, written mostly in narrative so people could understand it sitting around the fire. Written in the Hebrew language, which is mostly word pictures forming a sentence. Because a picture is worth how many words? A thousand words. In this passage here, 2 Samuel chapter 9, is buried an encouragement for believers and unbelievers alike, hope for unbelievers, encouragement for believers on what the gospel is. It's wrapped up in something called covenant. Not a term we're used to using when we talk about the gospel. We take covenant and we talk about other things in other areas. And I will just say this, that if you understand that the gospel is all about covenant and what goes behind that covenant, you will think differently about the gospel for the rest of your life here on this earth. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is a picture from a man named David who was the king, well he wasn't the king yet, but he had just established his, his being king over Israel. Saul was the first appointed king and it just died. And now we have this picture of 13 verses here. Very specifically about something that is so powerful, I just I want you to just drink in the pictures that come from this. 
what God is actually telling us that is true for all time. So if you're ready, I've kind of prepared you in the Old Testament. Let's get looking for these pictures, this action that's happening. But it's not an Old Testament story. This is the gospel, and you will see it. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a son, young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Again, this picture, as we meditate and drink this in, it is the truth of your word, the truth of who you are, your character, and you show us what binds you to us. Father, we pray that your spirit would move according to your word, the people that you have brought, even I myself, need this understanding in every way. Lord, this is from you, but it is for you, and it is to you. We now explain the preaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, all the gospel really is bound up in covenant. 
this idea of covenant. And specifically, just to help you follow along, to give you a little outline, I know sometimes narratives don't need an outline, but I'll give you one here, because it's three particular actions that God takes when he is in covenant. When he is in covenant, he does three things. And the gospel is a covenant. Get that in mind. As we see David here pursuing that very thing in covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Let's take a look. Our first action of God. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Interesting question. Why is that an interesting question? Well, again, with Old Testament, we need to put ourselves in perspective. This isn't a collection of stories. The Old Testament is history. It's, it's flowing from Genesis to Abraham to Israel, 12 sons, eventually the tribes get their land and they're building a kingdom. The first king is Saul out of Benjamin. David comes out of Judah, kills Goliath. There's a struggle in the kingdom. The Philistines are after him. All of that's going on. Chapter 8 gives us a little bit of understanding of, of what's going on in verse 1. Let me reread verse 1 and tell you why we need to stop it and just check a few things out. David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Two things here. The word kindness is the word chesed. In Hebrew, chesed is kind of like agape in the New Testament, a special kind of love. It's specifically the kindness of God that he talks about. In verse 3, he says, Is there not anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? That's what chesed is. It's unusual for David to use this word. I want to show somebody specific a kind of con kindness, and then he says, for Jonathan's sake. Why would that be important to David? Understand, David is holding court. He's got his royal people around him. Because what's just happened, chapter 8 tells us, it leads us into what's going on in chapter 9. Chapter 8, after this, now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. You see what's going on in chapters 1 to 7, there was a bit of a tension between the house of David and the house of Saul. Because at the end of chapter 31 of, of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. The king and his Son, his firstborn coming up to become the king, both of them killed. The dynasty is at risk. What's going to happen now? There's a battle between David and the house, the sons of Saul, the other sons of Saul. They're fighting for the kingdom back and forth. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 is going on. So you can imagine this over these months, there's this difficulty like, what's going to happen? Uncertainty in the kingdom. 
Eventually, some of the other sons of Saul die. And David starts to strengthen his hand. He's moving along. And chapter 8 tells us something. After this, chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, it came about that David defeated the Philistines, subdued them, took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He's defeating the Philistines as a group. Verse 2, he defeated Moab. Verse 3, he defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. Verses 4 to 6 tells us how many horses and people he captured. And he put his own garrisons in place. Verse 7, he took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, brought them to Jerusalem. He's getting tribute now from all of the kings around. King David is now dedicating these things to the Lord, verse 11. Verse 13, David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Saul. You kind of get the picture here? I think David is going to be the ruler. And he's really made a name for himself about all the enemies around. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel. There it is. And David administered justice and righteousness for his people. 16 to 18, tell us who is in charge. That's chapter 8. Tells us that David is fully in charge. And now he's having court. He's sitting on his throne. He's there and everybody's around planning it out. What's going to happen? We've had victory against so many people. And he asks a question. Is there not yet left anyone of the house of Saul? David's still angry. Man, he's going to take care of Saul and make sure there's nobody who's going to rebel. Mm. But that I may show him chesed for Jonathan's sake. And they'll go, oh, you can hear the, you can hear the, the talking. David's looking out. Why would David do something like this for Jonathan's sake? Now you got to go with me. Still in Samuel because... Every narrative in the Old Testament is connected. It's connected to maybe something that happened a chapter before or even a book before because it's about people. And if you just go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18, this will answer the question. 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. All of chapter 17 is about one of the most famous historical accounts in the world. David, a young 15-year-old boy, meets a three-meter-tall man named Goliath. We know what happens. We love to tell that story to our kids at bedtime. That's chapter 17. So what happens after David defeats Goliath? Verse 1 of chapter 18. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Wow. Jonathan, the heir apparent to the king, turned to David and said, because I love you as I love myself, what does the text tell us? 
He knit his soul to David's soul. Wow. My soul is to your soul. And then verse 3 says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Wow. Knit. Something ladies tend to do. Knit. Tied together. Fastened together. Cannot be undone. Tangle it all together into one unit. There's now one soul. And when they make a covenant, a covenant is not made without blood. The book of Jeremiah tells us that a covenant is when you take an animal like a cow and you cut it in multiple pieces or two pieces and put one piece on one rock, put another piece on another rock, and the bloody pieces of the animal are there while the people making the covenant must walk in between the pieces and sometimes they might even do a figure eight around the pieces going around all the while saying, may God do to me what I've done to this animal if I have broken this covenant. That's a covenant ceremony. Jeremiah pictures this in one of the things that God was condemning Jerusalem about, saying, you made a covenant with me about releasing your slaves, and then you ended up taking them back. What were you thinking when you walked between the pieces? May God do to me what I've done to this animal if I break this covenant. That's a covenant ceremony. And specifically, verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor, everything, including his sword and his bow and his belt. That's a covenant. I am you, and you are me. David made that covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan initiated the covenant. Why? Because he knit his soul to David. I'll just stop here because what do we think of in the new covenant? What is the new covenant? The new covenant is God sends his son to become man so that his son does what? Knits his soul to our soul. What is being born again when God sends his Holy Spirit? In the mystery of the Trinity, Romans 8, 9 to 11 tells us the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead are all one in us. And God, through Christ, sending of the Holy Spirit, knits his soul to his children. Do you see that? Do you see that? Jonathan knit his soul to David. David never forgot that. And if you just turn your Bibles to chapter 20, we see that covenant unfold again when David's on the run, trusting in Jonathan to help protect him from his king. And chapter 20, verse 15, here is now 
what Jonathan is telling David in the covenant. You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. David, you will protect my house after I'm gone. You'll take care of my family after the Lord has given you rest from all the enemies from the face of the earth. So all the people that are after the Philistines, Arabians, everybody else, when you've defeated them and the Lord's given you rest from them, you will remember my family. And he made a covenant with the house of David saying, if you don't do this, may the Lord require it at the hands of your enemies. They will come after you if you break this covenant. That's the covenant David made with Jonathan. But also, coming up to 2 Samuel 9, we know in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. And God's covenant with David was that you will never lack having a son on the throne. Chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David now understands that God made a covenant with him that his throne will reign. But he also has a covenant with Jonathan. Their souls will knit together. Now that we know all that, we can understand verse 1. Nobody else in court had a clue. What in the world? <laughs> He's asking about Saul's family? I guess David's going to go do something. I guess David is going to go, he's on the march, he's going to get revenge. But David said, is there not yet anyone left of the house of Saul that it may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's, what's on David's mind? I need to fulfill that covenant. Verse 2, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Oh, as soon as, as, soon as they heard Chesed, house of Saul, for Jonathan's sake, Ziba, the servant of Saul, he decided, I'll take this. I got it. I don't see anger in David's face. I got it right here. I'm your servant. Got it. Verse 3. Oh, this is the, one of the most deflating statements in the Bible. Verse 3. The king said, is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? I appreciate that, Ziba. Good job. Raise your hand. Stay there for a second. Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm not looking for you, Ziba. Hmm. You are a servant of Saul. Everybody thought, yes, yeah, Ziba, there he goes. And then he just, ooh, get back there and stand over those people. For a little bit. Just stand over there. I'm not angry, but just, you're not what I'm looking for. Not what I'm looking for. 
So he says, is there not yet anyone of the house of Paul to why they show the chesed of Yahweh? And Ziba said to the king, yeah, I know somebody. I know somebody. I mean, Ziba's a man who won't give up. <laughs> he thought he, he thinks he has a chance here. Yeah, I do know somebody. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about that man. There's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Just want you to know that, David. Important note. Can't say that today in the politically correct world. Can't say that today. Physically disadvantaged, you might say. David says to Ziba, Ziba says back to David, yeah, son of Jonathan, but crippled in both feet for sure. Take note of that for a moment, because you're going to see it. I'll just tell you, there's, there's two terms in this passage that are repeated, and they're repeated for a reason, for us to take note. This will be one of them. Ziba wants David to know there's a, there's a young man named Micah who is crippled at both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? Well, you could hear <laughs> in court. David's voice. Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of the chair, the son of Abiel, in Lodabar. Ziba's getting bolder. Why didn't Ziba say he's crippled in both feet? Well, let me again show you how the Bible's connected. Go back a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Very important. I just want to show you these verses that tend to kind of pop out of nowhere in the Old Testament. You don't know what to do with them, so you just kind of keep on going. And you think, wow, that's just tough reading the Old Testament. Oh, there's all kinds of, you know, we live in Africa where we have lots of diamonds. What's that shining thing? I don't know. Throw it over there. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Bring it back. Second Samuel chapter 4 is talking about another son of Saul getting murdered by people who were trying to get the favor of David. But in chapter 4, verse 4, it's one of those things when you're watching like a TV movie and you're into the action, then all of a sudden the scene changes to somebody like in a completely separate country doing something, having nothing to do with the plot, and you watch it for a few minutes, and then you come right back to the plot. You're like, what was that? Well, you're going to need it later in the movie. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. Ha! Ah, look at that. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he left and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Interesting. Chapter 4, verse 4 tells us how he became crippled. He was a regular guy, a five-year-old boy, five-year-old boy. And then the report came that Saul and Jonathan were killed in the valley of Jezreel, 1 Samuel 31, by the Philistines. Oh no, with Saul and Jonathan out, everyone in the house of Saul is, is in jeopardy. David's going to kill them all. David's on the march. The king is coming and he's angry. 
The king is coming and he's, he's going to just wipe out everybody who might want to take his, take his throne. So the nurse picked him up and fled. But because she wasn't watching what she was doing, she dropped this five-year-old boy and he fell at a strange angle and both ankles broke. Crippled in both feet. Not from birth, from an accident. Mm. And he's still crippled much later. Which means they had to be broken. He couldn't walk. What was the reason for the, for the his injury? What was the reason for this, this young five-year-old boy's life to just be snatched and now put into where he had to be in shame the rest of his life? It was because the nurse said, the king is angry, the king is coming, we gotta run. You ever feel that way about God? He's angry. He must hide. With what I've done the last week, the last month, I need to get out of here. Have you been running from God? Jonathan had a covenant with David. The nurse had no idea that the family of Jonathan was in covenant with David. She had no idea. The young five-year-old boy had no idea. He's in covenant with David. If they would have known, if they would have known that they were in covenant, if they would have known that the king, no way would he put a, a just, just harm a hair on his head, if he would have just known. But instead, oh, he's angry, he's going to come. Why was that also reinforced? Well, if you just move to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 and 8, what we understand is that David was taking Jerusalem, fighting a group of people called the Jebusites. Verses 6 and 8. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David, just, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So, so basically, verse 6, the Jebusites were talking trash. They were chirping. Hey, you can't get in here. Ha! <laughs> You know what? Tell you what, our blind and lame people can take you out, David. That's what they said. So David, as he was winning, David was one who didn't have much restraint at times. So guess what? He talked trash back. Verse 8, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. You see, when David talked trash back, and he won, now everybody says that's the reputation of David. He hates blind and lame people. Hmm. He's a warrior. He hates weak people. He wants strong people. The image gets out there amongst people who have no idea of a covenant. And they give a reputation for David. Isn't that the reputation of God 
the one who never gives you what you want and always just gives you a clump of a cup, right? That's God. You don't do it right. And so we run, right? We run. All that's why in 2 Samuel 9, Ziba says, oh, and he's crippled in both feet. Because we know you're going to hate everybody in the house of Saul, and you hate the lady in the blind. So let me just put that guy before you, says Ziba. So this king said, where is he? Ziba said to the king, behold, he's in the house of Mature, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. I will give you one Hebrew word this morning. Actually, two Hebrew words. So there'll be a couple of guys here who know what I'm talking about. Lodabar, the name of a town. The name of a town. What does that name mean in English? No place. No place. We actually have that town up by Polokwane, where I work. You just go east towards Zanin, about 10 kilometers, and there's a sign that says, nobody, that way. <laughs> there's a town called nobody. So when you get Americans, they come and you say, oh, look, there's nobody. No, there really is somebody, but they're in nobody, see. The name of the place is no place. Why? Because he doesn't want to be found. Mm. He's crippled in both feet. And we know how the king feels about people who are lame mm. and weak. So he's in no place. Mm. And here's our point of the first action that God does in verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. King David said, then go get him. God pursues those whom he is in covenant with, with a mighty fury. God pursues his covenant children with a fury. Why do I say the word fury? Because fury is not always right. Fury is just excitement. Fury is as much as you can. Fury is everything you've got. You see, anger and wrath and love are not opposites. They're not opposites. They're twins. It just has a different effect. When you're chasing the mamba that threatens your family, you're coming after it quickly. If you were a father, and today's Father's Day, if you're a father to protect your family, you come out with some kind of a, a machete, some kind of a knife, some kind of a long stick, some kind of thing, and you're going to beat that thing to death. I remember the first time I did a church camp here in Joburg. And I had my friends, Quacha and Connie from Malawi there, and we were in the house. But then we saw that in the house, there was a snake. And I found out later, it's probably a uh, lentils. 
which is not what you want, right? It's a poisonous cobra snake. Well, the family was, whoosh, they're going away. And we're trying to figure out, is it safe to be in the house? I'll tell you what, <laughs> these guys are friends, Kwa Kani Kwa, but they weren't going to give up. They came in with sticks and everything. We're going to chase that snake, we're going to beat that snake to death. Now, unfortunately for me, they just irritated the snake and then said, well, we can't find them and they left. But we've got now an irritated snake in the house. Fury is coming after but the other is a, a father chasing his five-year-old son, squealing. Yeah! I, I do confess when I was very younger and I had our first two, three years to play the game, we would chase them around the kitchen. And, and our, and mothers don't understand this game, so they get very excited and say, stop, stop, stop! His heart's beating too fast. But you're chasing them around because when you pick them up, to throw them in the air and catch them. He's just like, let's do it again, Daddy. They are twins. Fury is what you're chasing, is the effort with which you're going. God pursues his covenant children with a fury. Psalm 23 tells us this. Surely goodness and mercy will, you will say, follow me all the days of my life. Well, I already have mistaken because I'm not going to give you a second Hebrew word. It's not the word follow. Years ago when we were here, there was an American missionary with us. Went to Kruger for the first time. And went out, and you know when you are in Kruger, the rule is when you're with elephants, you always keep the car in gear, motor running, space, and you can move forward. You don't want to have to be going in reverse. But you always make sure the elephant's secure, ideally, or you have space to get out, and you're in gear, first gear. Engine going, you go. Rule. So now you just know this. If you're from Africa, you know that. And Mary was in the back seat, so I hope that's great. You know, we want him to do something, we want to get active. And, and so he, he got a little, get a little closer, so he just took a handful of peanuts. Window down. Here we go. <laughs> well, needless to say, there was a cloud of dust. And here come the elephants. Well, the driver, being probably South African, was. We're going to move on now. And the American looks at the window and says, Oh, look! They're following us! <laughs> no. They're pursuing us. Surely goodness and mercy shall radath, pursue me all the days of my life. Very different picture. Pursue. God will chase you with his loving kindness. He will chase you. He will not follow you, making sure you're taken care of in the back. No, no, he will chase you. He's in Lodabar, no place. Go get it. The court. Doors open, soldiers go out. Brings us to verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his faith, and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, 
and he said, here is your servant. It took a while, but the soldiers went, chariot, full off, horses, off they go. Mephibosheth is in Lodabar, in place, he's just trying to do his normal tasks, maybe getting some wood, then here come the chariots, dust, oh, here they come, what's coming in? Oh no, and they hear the one word, Mephibosheth, the king demands your presence. I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I never thought they, who told? Somebody told. As they grabbed him and put him in the chariot and say, well, what does the king want? Quiet. Well, well, what does he want me to do? Quiet. Get in the chariot. We're soldiers. We do the job. Off they go. Well, well, what does the king want? You know, if you speak again, we'll drag you and you're going to have to run behind the chariot, okay? You don't talk to soldiers. Right? You wait. We're moving, because why? we got to get there before court's over. King said, now. Court hears the chairs come up. They come up, and that's what we go, oh. Now it's quiet. The door is thrust open, like that. Here it comes. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul. He comes and falls on his face, prostrate to David, walking down the aisle, coming down. And all the court is watching as this young man with broken feet, maybe has sticks. It's gonna take a while. They, you know how you, it's tough. You see people, they have these conditions, whether it's a cerebral palsy or strength, and we labor with each one, don't we? We wanna help them, but we can't. And they're gonna try to this is the course. He just, it's, we're going to wait. He's coming. And the whole court is looking and looking at David. And David's sitting there and he's staring and he's staring and, and he's walking on his feet. The pain of having to walk so far because he's not used to having to walk that far. And he's coming along and he's dead. And he's coming, he's walking here. And the king is looking, but if you watch the king, he's sitting on the edge of his seat. And then he's moving closer to his feet, and he's inching his head out. He's looking, and he's looking closer. And as Mephibosheth comes here, and he just gets right here, David's not looking. And as he's looking, a smile is coming across his face. Why? Why? He's never seen him before in his life. Why this care? Just to keep covenant? Because when he sees him from back there, coming up here, and he looks deep into the face of Jonathan, or the face of Mephibosheth, what does he see? Jonathan. You bet. And the more he sees Jonathan, he's just like, whoa. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, came to David, prostrated himself, and said, and what does David say? Mephibosheth! Here's your servant. It took a lot for me to get here. Here's your servant. David said to him, the one phrase that's repeated 365 times in Scripture. You think God wants us to know something? He'll tell them to us 365 times, one for each day of the year. 
Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear, said the king. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table. How? How? Regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? He's like, Don't talk like that. I said, yes. Don't talk like that. King called Saul's servant Ziba. Remember him? The first guy? Hey, you! Shorty, get over here. Yeah, talk to me. No, no, you! Get a gift line! You! Yeah! Here. Right here. Right here. Right now. All that belong to Saul and all his house, I've given to. Listen, get it? I better see this, okay? You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall leave my table out regularly. Another repeated word. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Doesn't say regularly here. You know what it says? As one of the king's sons. Now, there's the table. We have a holiday in America. We have a holiday. It is actually the most... Uh, I'd say it's the most popular holiday. Our group in the back will know it. It's the one that has the most travel throughout the year, and it's not Christmas. It is a holiday called Thanksgiving because it begins on, I think, the third or fourth Thursday in November. And that means Friday is always day off, and you have a four-day weekend. And that begins, the Friday afterward begins the whole Black Friday let's spend it there. But the whole purpose of it was to look back at the history of the country, the founding of the country, and every country has their kind of deals, you know, that they do. And this was founding, uh, the founding of America by the first people who came from Europe. Had a big spread after the harvest. So they have something called Thanksgiving. Families fly across the country. Grannies, aunts, uncles, everybody, cousins, it's when everybody sees each other. Big deal. Now the problem with Thanksgiving is you're not going to get everybody around the table. You're just not. You get 30 people, what are you going to do? Right? So, in Thanksgiving, this is true pretty much for most all the people, you've got the adult table and then you've got Clanky table. Clanky duffel. Tapolia banana. Because the adults said, they talk about adult things. They talk about important things. There's no greater moment than when you can move, graduate, when you're the oldest now at the 
trying to tussle. And this Thanksgiving, no, you're over here. We got to see you. Whoa. I mean, like, I won't say a word. I won't say a word. I know my place, but I get to sit with the adults. I mean, if you're one of the younger ones at the Clanky Doppel, it's fine. Middle one is fine. But when you become the oldest, it's like, why do I have to be here with these people? You will eat at David's table as one of the king's sons. You're not over there with the help. You're not even over there with the babies. Come on. Right here. Right here. You're with me. Right here. Have a seat. What does Psalm 23 say? You will prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies for an oil and food. You kind of see where Psalm 23 comes a bit? What does this say? This says, oh, before I even tell you what it says, look at verse 12 and 13. Mephibosheth had a young man, son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. I get this in verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table. How? Regularly. But what else? Oh, now he was laying in both feet. Huh. I guess the author here wants us to understand how lame Mephibosheth was. Crippled in feet. And how often he ate at the king's table. Now we'll just say this. When Mephibosheth was at the table eating with the king, and the king was there, and he barely could find a place to sit. Do you think they talked about his feet at all? Or do you think they talked about Jonathan? What was he like as a dad? What was he like as a friend? Tell me the stories. Say it again. I don't think the feet were mentioned once. How many of us in covenant worry and think that because we're lame, because we're broken, because we have a past, because we have something we're hanging on to, we think God is also hanging on to it. And so we come to God always looking at our feet. Do you feel that way? Have you been living in Lodabar, hiding from God? Have you been always looking concerned at your brokenness, your rebellion against God, even as a believer? Have you been doing that? Because what it means to be in covenant is to sit at God's table and you never even once think about your feet. And God says, you want more? Because that's who he is. What's the second thing God does? He provides lavishly to his covenant children. Well, we're out of time, but I'm just going to give you the last, which is not found in 2 Samuel 9. It's found actually in chapter 21. Again, we're talking about two men, David and Mephibosheth. Remember the covenant that David made with Jonathan? You will protect my house. 
in chapter 21, something happened. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it's for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. That's an important connection. Because the Gibeonites were people who tricked Joshua. Way back in Joshua. They didn't want to die because they knew Joshua was on the march and was going to kill all the Canaanites. So the Gibeonites who were in the land heard about this, so they, made, they, they took their oldest pair of shoes, they, they took out all their bread, threw it out, and put in a bunch of rusks. And they came in, and they said, oh, we're from far away. Make a covenant with us. We want to be with you. So they did it without checking. And then they found later, oh, we're supposed to be killing you. But now we can't because we made a covenant. And so the Gibeonites were under covenant with Israel all the way up till Saul's day. And Saul got angry, and he killed them. Not all of them. David just found out there was a three-year famine because Saul broke the covenant. So the king called the Gibeonites, spoke to them, basically summarizing, what can I do for you? What do you need? How do we fix this? Verse 4, the Gibeonites said to him, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. David says, I'll do whatever you say. So verse 6, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord and give you Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Just give it us, just give us seven of sons, seven of Saul's remaining sons, and we're gonna we're gonna hang them to death. Verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan the son of Saul. Why? Because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. Not that one. We will fix this covenant problem that God is angry about, but not with that. He is shielded by my covenant. What is the third thing God does? He protects his covenant children with a mighty hand. We might not think we're protected, but this is what God does. No temptation is overtaken us that is not common to man, but God is faithful. will always provide us a way out and a way to bear up under it so that we can go through this. Always. You are never alone. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the gospel. It's not just believing something and your sins are forgiven. It's understanding that you are brought into a family relationship where before he is your God. But what does the New Testament tell us then under Christ? He is now your father. Your father. Every day should be Father's Day. Our father who art in heaven. Not our God, our Father. Because we're brought into the family. Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that they will be in us as you are in me and I am in you. They are in us. Which means we're included in that Trinitarian circle 
In some way, we are children of God. Not over there sitting in the planky tuffle and the tuffle de Foliabana. Not that. No, no, no. You're here with us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all the people. Isaiah 53, and he will see his offspring. Family. Father. That's covenant. That's the gospel. It's not you independently doing something so that your sins are forgiven. It's that you are not only forgiven, but you're a new person from an enemy to a child of God. That's very different. I'll just end with this. There was a time, 2009, our family took on a young orphan Zimbabwean street kid, kid named Hanson. He was about 11 or 12 at the time. Knocked on our gate. The Lord just impressed on me to say, come inside the gate. Never happened before. What are you? Well, he's so small. And I knew in that time, in that year, is when elections were in Zimbabwe, and they were burning villages, and they were killing people, and it was very violent. And here's a street thing. About a minute. Very difficult situation. He was hardened. He wouldn't talk to us. We tried for many years. Tried to put him in school. He hadn't been in school since third grade. Didn't have a pair of shoes when he was in Zimbabwe. He was, his family was starving him. He was certainly laying at his feet. But he's kind of a typical rural, third world African story. Sometimes we in South Africa don't understand that because we are so developed. But trying to bring him in and have him understand, we really mean it. We really mean it. Give him a room. Close. The doctor. But the church worked with us. The church was all part of it. Tried to get him an education. He just couldn't quite get there. Got him a job afterwards. But still, he clung to his feet and chose to depart. In 2018, he passed away in a car crash because he was on his own with the wrong people, the wrong friends, and died. Now he's right in the presence of the Lord to face his situation, which I can't tell you what it is. Because he did hear the gospel, he knew the gospel, he didn't deny the gospel. But what he couldn't accept is that, is this really true? I kept saying, yes, I don't know how we're gonna make it work, we're gonna make it work. Just kept seeing his feet. And kept seeing, yeah, but there's there's something wrong with you. This is how God sees us. This is how God sees us. Come. What does Jesus say? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will not give you the back of my hand. 
I will not crush you for all your sins. Come and be in covenant and get this kind of pursuit, provision, protection that you've never had. This is what needs to be preached. This is what we need to understand. Not just a simple John 3.16. This is what God's doing. All the little picture of a historical account of David wrapped in there between all the big action stories in 2 Samuel 9. What God intends for his people in covenant. So I think that's what he had for us this morning. To just understand the grace is something that we marvel at in every way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your goodness to us. The marvel of the gospel, so much so that the scripture tells us that angels long to look into it. We just don't understand. Father, we pray by your grace, through these words of scripture, we do understand and can now worship with full hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.